You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast for therapists where we talk about the things that make us therapists and the things that come up in our lives, things that show up in our offices. And we are really happy to be joined by one of our former Therapy Reimagined speakers. It's been a couple of years since we've really got to hang out with today's guests, but Dr. Talal Al-Saleem, MFT, and one of the great people that I've come across in my career and has some really good ideas that changed the way that I looked at treating infidelity and affairs when it comes up in families and really excited to have a chance to talk with you today. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. We're so excited to have you here and just so good to see you. It's been so long, but I definitely am glad to, to see your face, have a conversation, all that good stuff. The first question we ask all of our guests is, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Well, my name is Dr. Talal Al-Saleem. I'm the creator of Systematic Affair Recovery Therapy and the founder of the Infidelity Counseling Center. And what I'm trying to put in the world is a new way for us to look at infidelity, a new framework to help us understand what it is, uh, why does it happen, how do we prevent it, and what is the best way for us to treat it. For a lot of our episodes, we start with kind of this idea as far as a, a teaching moment of what kinds of mistakes have other therapists made about working with affairs that maybe if those are mistakes from your vantage point, that we can save some of our audience from making some of those same mistakes. Great question. So we're not going to have time to cover all the mistakes, but I'm going to share with you <laughs> the, the, the three common ones that I witness when I do my trainings. The first common mistake therapists make is not really understanding what is the goal of infidelity counseling. The goal of infidelity counseling is not always to repair the relationship. The purpose of infidelity counseling is to give clients the opportunity to understand what happened, why it happened, assess the damage, and figure out what's the best way to heal from this. Because some people can heal by rebuilding the relationship and making the relationship better, stronger than it was prior to the discovery of the affair. But some people have to consider healing individually because uh, not everybody's going to be able and willing to do what it takes to rebuild trust. So I always tell folks that the goal of infidelity counseling is to make sure that this traumatic event does not define the rest of your life. You can use this trauma as a catalyst for change, whether this is a change for a new healthy relationship or change to move on to a healthier relationship. A second mistake that I have seen is the therapist failing in setting clear clinical expectation for the clients. And I believe that is the case with any kind of therapy, not just in fidelity counseling. There are a lot of times where clients drop out of therapy or they think a therapy is not working, not because the therapist is bad or the treatment modality is not efficient. It's because they don't really know how the process is supposed to look like. And I think that kind of reflects the fact that most therapists don't really know what the steps that they need to take to help their clients heal from infidelity. Yeah. So if you as the guy don't know what those milestones are, it's going to be ambiguous for your clients and sometimes people drop out too soon. Another common mistake is fixating on processing the emotional expression of the clients and getting sidetracked from addressing the core issues. 
And this has to do with the fact that after the discovery, people are hurting. And yes, there needs to be a lot of time spent on process, but also you need to help your clients navigate the obstacles that they're facing so they can make a decision about the future of the relationship. So these are the three common mistakes that I have seen when I train therapists. It seems like there's additional clinical challenges. All those mistakes make sense. And it seems like there's additional clinical challenges for therapists because to me, there is bias and a lot of societal opinions about affairs, about infidelity. And to me, it seems like therapists can get really caught in that because there's so little, I, I certainly didn't learn about affair recovery. You know, it was, it's one of those things where I feel like this is something that's very taboo. It's very judged. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about how therapists are kind of impacted by societal bias in, in affair recovery. Absolutely. So, so I'll tell you some of the clinical challenges therapists face. And, and for me, so, so infidelity is really one of the most prevalent issues that couples face, and it's one of the most damaging. But it's mind-boggling to me that in this day and age, as trained professionals, we're so ill-equipped to deal with it. So the first challenge is the lack of adequate training for treating uh, infidelity. You know, when I do my trainings, I always ask people, you know, show hands in this room, how many people recall taking a graduate level course to help you deal with infidelity? <laughs> and it's either zero hand or maybe I get lucky and I see one hand or two. Yeah. Uh, so, that, so that's a problem. There is lack of adequate training in graduate programs as well as in internship sites. But also there aren't and they haven't been tailor-made treatment modalities for infidelity up until I developed the SART model. Another challenge is the lack of understanding of the etiology, because remember, if you're trying to prevent relapse, regardless of whether or not people are going to stay in this relationship or move on, you need to understand why the infidelity happened and need to be able to address all the different factors that have contributed to that fear. Another challenge is the fact when you work with infidelity recovery, you're dealing in a highly explosive therapeutic environment people are fragile. And I always give the analogy that the difference between doing regular couples counseling versus infidelity recovery, it's like the difference between outpatient services versus a surgery. Mm. And when you're doing, doing infidelity counseling, you're, you're doing surgery, you know, the length of the sessions are longer, every mistake counts, and you need to be very strategic about your interventions. But also, infidelity is one of those issues that we all have either direct experience with in our relationship or indirect through the relationship of others uh, that we care about. So there's high potential for transference and counter-transference. And I always tell my trainees, if you don't work on those issues prior to working in infidelity recovery, you're going to struggle because it's going to push your buttons. What is the kind of reasons that infidelity happens? Because I think for me, my, my clearest way to get past counter-transference or bias is to understand why it's happening. So what are some of the, the big reasons why? Well, this gives me an opportunity to actually to clarify a myth that people have about infidelity. If you ask the average person, why does infidelity happen? Most people will say it's because they're not happy with their partner or relationship deficits. Now, granted, relationship deficit is one of the leading causes of infidelity, but it's not the only one. We all have seen those relationships, whether in therapy or in personal life, where we look at the couple and we just don't get it. Like, you know, they seem to have the right partner. They seem to be compatible. Their partner is wonderful and great and meeting their own needs. But despite that, they are still dealing with infidelity. Well, sometimes infidelity happens because of individual issue that the unfaithful is struggling with, something that they brought into the relationship. 
A lot of it has to do with some uh, mental health issues. Uh, I'll give you some common examples of uh, mental health issues that has a higher correlation with affairs discovery as well as engagement in affairs, personality disorders. And a common thing that I see is narcissistic personality disorder. And this has to do with the narcissist need for constant attention. So they might be with a partner who's giving them the attention that they need, but is not adequate. They need it for multiple resources or that sense of I'm special and I don't have to play the same rules of exclusivity that I expect of you. Another common individual issue that could lead to infidelity is addiction, sex addiction or hypersexuality, depending on what terminology you want to use. When people struggle with hypersexuality, they tend to have higher prevalent rates of sexual affairs. So this is just the nature of their symptoms. And these are just two of the individual mental health issues that could lead to infidelity. But in addition to the individual and the relationship factors, there is environmental factors that could lead to infidelity. And this is the most ignored aspect in research as well as in training. Believe it or not, the sociological environmental environment that we live in can actually increase or decrease one's likelihood for engaging in fidelity. I'll just use one example to highlight this piece. Have you guys heard about a website named Ashley Madison? Yes. Yes. Okay. For, for the folks who don't know what that is, it's a website for people who want to have affairs. Their tagline is life is short, have an affair. So a few years <laughs> oh, ago, no. it's, it's awful. A few years ago, uh, there was a data breach to the site and it gave researchers a golden opportunity to analyze a large set of data, socioeconomical data about the people who are on this website. And one of the things that they found out, people occupation might actually inf- can be a risk or protective factor against infidelity. They saw that there are specific type of jobs tend to be highly represented on the website. And again, I'll give this disclaimer. Just because you or your partner have this job doesn't mean that you're unfaithful. It just means <laughs> that you have higher potential for inviting infidelity. And I'll just choose one category of jobs that they have discovered in that research. And this is actually consistent with, I, with what I see in clinical practice. They found that there is a higher representation of people who are in the military. So why is this the case? One, being in the military means that you have frequent deployment, and that puts a lot of pressure on the individual mental health as well as strain on the relationship. Being in the military means that oftentimes you're going to be deployed to a different state or different country, which means that if you have fantasies about infidelity, your level of anonymity is going to be higher, which means it's going to be easier for you to cross those lines because the risk of discovery is minimal. Who's going to know? Different state, different country. Another reason that uh, folks in the military have higher prevalence rates of infidelity is the ratio disparity between males and females. As you already know that, you know, there, there are more males than females in the military. Why does this lead to infidelity? Well, when you are in a location where you have some kind of geographical isolation and there is a huge disparities between males and females, there are not going to be enough partners to go around. So it creates this sense of competition over available partners. Now, historically, you know, prior to the world shrinking and being a village and we, you know, we're able to travel, when people were, have those uh, situations of geographical isolation, societies came up with creative solutions to fix the disparity between males and females. And that's why they invented polygamy and polyandry, like a socially sanctioned solution to solve those problems. So we have a similar echo of that problem now in the military, at least for the folks who are stationed in places where they have limited off-base privilege. The last piece related to the military is cultural norm. So sociologists believe that if you are part of a cultural group, macro or micro, 
and this cultural group have a cultural norm that advocate for infidelity or doesn't frown upon it, you're more likely going to engage in it because it's kind of socially sanctioned. And this is a common cultural norm that folks in the military will report that this is what you do when you're away. It's kind of like what happened in Vegas stays in Vegas. Mm. So that's just one way to highlight how environmental factors can increase the likelihood for engaging in infidelity. And yet nowhere on that list is it because people in the military wear camouflage and they think that they're not going to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but, but you know what, Kurt? That actually might be the appeal of the uniform. So there's, uh, you, you just highlighted a new one. Sure. <laughs> but it, it does, your last point here does lead me to ask is if there is this sanction about it, is it actually, in fact, infidelity? Because I remember when you were first out with your book, having a conversation around kind of like infidelity really kind of starts with this idea of the social contract in a relationship. And if there is kind of this agreement, whether it's spoken or not, about this contract in a marriage of like, yeah, as long as I don't, you know, you don't come back with a disease or a kid, like, that's fine. Is that in fact infidelity? Sure. And and actually, this brings up the issue of, you know, how do we define infidelity? And I'll, I'll share that because this was the first obstacle that I had to kind of overcome and fix. Because, you know, my clients that I work with come from different background, different types of relationship, and their idea of what infidelity is going to vary person to person and based on the type of relationship they have and their cultural background and spiritual belief system. So I truly believe that relationships should operate like business partnerships in the sense that there should be a contract that explains how many people we have in this relationship. Is it one? Is it two? Is it 20? What are the emotional and sexual needs that we are expecting our partners to fulfill in this relationship? And to what extent the fulfillment of those needs is exclusive only to the partners in this relationship? So infidelity from the sort model becomes a conscious breach of contract of exclusivity that you have with your partners. It's whenever you engage in any kind of need fulfillment, emotional or sexual, that was supposed to be fulfilled exclusively by the partners that you have in the relationship. When you outsource those needs without their consent, you're violating the, the contract exclusivity. And the breach of contract in itself becomes the act of infidelity. So that's the threshold of defining it. So what you're saying, though, is for folks in kind of whether it's called ethical non-monogamy or whatever it is, that still falls within that contract. And so it would be going outside of whatever has been agreed within the partnerships that are available within that contract. Correct. And, and bringing this back to that point that Kurt highlighted, like, you know, if it's socially sanctioned, then is it really infidelity? Now, again, it becomes an issue of which social contract the person is operating under. So we're talking about somebody who's operating from a cultural norm of, you know, I know my partner is expecting exclusivity, but in my society, it's okay to, you know, not be exclusive. Then this person is, you know, not honoring the relationship contract. So just because society says it's okay, or your peer says it's okay, it does not mean it's going to be aligned with what your partner expecting of you. So for me, really what guides that is the social contract that you have with your partner versus what your cultural, because, you know, even regardless of whatever cultural group that we all belong to, we're not always going to adhere 100% to all of these cultural norms. We might cherry pick what's, you know, useful for us. So you've talked a little bit about the SART model that you've created. Maybe we can kind of start there as we start to explore 
what we should be doing in sessions with our clients and the families that we serve that are in these situations with infidelity. What's the SART model? So systematic affair recovery therapy, it's a practice-based treatment method for treating infidelity that has developed to address the glaring gaps in the evidence-based models that we've been using to treat infidelity. So it's the best of both worlds. It was designed to give clinicians of all levels, not just uh, seasoned ones. And I would also say students would benefit from doing this training to help give them a blueprint to understand what are the milestones of recovery that they need to help their clients navigate. So there is seven milestones of recovery. Each one of those milestones have a specific clinical objective to achieve, as well as uh, there is specific intervention that you need to do. There's do's and don'ts. The first milestone of recovery is setting the stage for healing. And the purpose is really to make sure that you create the best environment for recovery. There are a lot of steps to kind of achieve that objective, but a lot of it has to do with helping clients to agree on some logistics to make sure that they have the best environment of care. One of those logistics is that we have to make an agreement that we keep the discovery to us as well as the professionals that we're hiring versus putting this on Facebook and the public. Because a lot of times when people, you know, try to recover in the public eye, the decision that they make about the future of the relationship is going to be influenced by external pressure. That's just one example of one of the things that needs to be accomplished in the first milestone. The second milestone, which is the most important one, is getting the narrative of the affair. And clinicians are split on that one. A lot of people say, you know, affair, that the narrative doesn't matter. Or some people say every detail matters. And some says, you know, just the main points. So for me, this is what's going to make or break the process, because as you said, Katie, if, if somebody wants to make a decision, they have to understand why does this happen? So this is the opportunity to really un uncover what type of infidelity took place, as well as the factors that led to it, because this is going to help both partners make an informed decision, how they're going to heal whether together or as individuals. The third milestone of recovery is going to be acknowledging the impact of infidelity. And this is really crucial. A lot of times, you know, the betrayed doesn't recover because they don't feel that the unfaithful truly express that they understand the damage that they have caused, or they're not showcasing the right emotional expression that they're expecting them to have as a result of this discovery. So it's an opportunity to be able to highlight whether or not the unfaithful understand the damage, an opportunity to assess the damage and to see if the unfaithful actually have the right emotional expression needed for that. As if I'm the betrayed, why would I want to rebuild with somebody who is not uh, willing to take acknowledgement for the damage that they have caused. So in the telling of the story, to me, it seems like there is a lot. And, and then also in the acknowledging of the damage, it seems that the unfaithful has a lot of opportunity for defensiveness, blaming the relationship, especially given the bias or the, the myth that it's caused by deficiencies in the partner or in the relationship. How do you navigate that? Because that, to me, I feel like before we even get past this, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to be thinking about this until we until I understand kind of how do you how do you support a good, helpful story and an acknowledgement of the impact? Great, great question, Katie. Because again, that's another thing that therapists kind of shy away from or get wrong. Before we even begin the process, I always highlight to my clients how I view infidelity. I always tell folks, infidelity, everything we do, good or bad, happen for a reason, right? Even the bad things that we do. So in their quest to understand why the infidelity happened, we have to accept that the unfaithful is 100% responsible for the decision that they make for being unfaithful. 
So even in the worst case scenario where their relationship, there was a huge relationship deficit and you have the worst partner in the universe, it doesn't give you permission to cheat. You can take them to counseling. You can end the relationship before you cross those lines. So the, the, the mantra that I always kind of repeat, you know, these are explanation versus excuses or justifications, right? Because we have to understand that A led to B led to C. I think that's a good way to kind of find that balance by highlighting the relationship deficit, but also without blaming the betrayer to say it's your fault that they cheated. Back to the milestones of recovery. So like I said, we have uh, setting the stage for healing. We have, you know, getting the narrative, acknowledging the impact. Then the fourth milestone is choosing a path of recovery and going through the area of assessment that people need to go through to make that informed decision, whether we heal together or heal as individuals. And then we have the milestones of creating an action plan. And this would be whether we create an action plan for rebuilding the relationship. That action plan will have to entail addressing all the different factors that led to the infidelity, the individual, relational, as well as the environmental factors. And that would entail having concrete steps to how we're going to fix those issues. Action plan for separation would be really how do we separate in an amicable way and redefine our roles, if, and this is especially important for the folks who have kids together and they have to be in each other's life, and how do we do that with the least damage possible for everybody around us. And after we create the action plan, the next milestone would be the implementation and the healing pains. And at this point of time, we're talking about the folks who decided to rebuild the relationship. How do they implement those new changes and deal with the, you know, uh, residual symptoms of the trauma? And the last milestone is the sustainability. And now, you know, if everybody does their job, clients are going to end up with a better, stronger relationship than they ever had, which sounds like a crazy thing to say, because even, you know... (laughs) A lot of people get confused by the title of my book when I say infidelity is the best, worst thing that could happen to your marriage. I'll say, like, think of it this way. Most people usually know about the individual and the relationship and environmental deficit that they have in their life. But oftentimes, they don't address it, whether it's a time issue, resources, or they don't think it's serious enough. Or sometimes they think this is what a marriage rut is. But when something like infidelity happened, it's like a heart attack to the relationship. You can no longer afford to sweep things under the rug. So it's a golden opportunity for people to seriously take a look at those issues. And if they actually fix those issues, they're going to be better by this experience because now they're going to have a healthier relationship with themselves and a healthier relationship with one another, which means that the sustainability piece, if you're going to reach this new healthy baseline, you need to make sure that you prevent relapse and make sure that this new healthy baseline is being actually maintained and growing. So in this process, I have seen some couples where in practicality, what they're negotiating is, you know, things like being able to check phone messages, check, you know, cutting people out of lives, you know, not just the person that the affair was done with, but also maybe some of the other people that knew about it, friends, colleagues, those kinds of things. How do you navigate those conversations in the therapy room as far as what ends up feeling good enough to the person who has been cheated on along with the person who did cheat and isn't feeling just like suddenly trapped all of a sudden? Sure. So, you know, people have to accept that if they want to heal 
via rebuilding the relationship, then some major changes need to happen. But I always highlight, don't make those changes unless you believe that they are the right and healthy one for you to do. And this specifically for the unfaithful who might struggle with some of those changes. Because I've seen enough people who do just enough work to get out of the doghouse, and then they go back and kind of repeat those same patterns. So I'm not interested in somebody just doing what I say is the right thing to do. They have to actually be able to see the value in that. Let's bring up the piece about transparency. So I think people sometimes conflate transparency with rebuilding trust. So transparency and surveillance, I could say, like you could have somebody watch you 24-7, and if you want to be unfaithful, you still find ways right? So transparency by itself does not guarantee not having relapse. I see it as a rehabilitative tool, really more of a crutch that you need until you see actual signs of those factors that have led the infidelity to be fixed, right? So it's a mean to an end. Because really the only way for the betrayed to rebuild trust by really truly understanding why this happened and seeing actual change of those factors that have led to it. Anything short of that is just really wishful thinking. And again, it just really depends on which couple that you work with. Some unfaithful understand that there is some changes that needs to happen and okay with it. And for some folks, they feel like, no, I don't want to make those changes. And that can be actually part of the assessment of whether or not you should be built together or heal individually. The piece about changing interaction with others, the part that's important for me clinically is the relationship with the third party, which is the term that I use for the other person in the affair. People cannot heal if the third party is still in the unfaithful life. And I don't speak in absolutes. I don't like that because there's always exceptions. In a perfect world, if you don't have to see the third party or you cross path with them, then great. That's what we want to shoot for. But it's not a perfect world. There are some situations where the third party have to be in your life. Let's say that, you know, you work in the same place and you can't just quit your job, right? Or that, you know, the affair maybe led to a pregnancy and now we have an offspring with this third party. In those situations, transparency is absolute. And we also have to agree on what are the appropriate level of interaction so that the betrayed doesn't have to worry about, you know, those relationships leading back to relapse and to affairs. You talk about it as a kind of means to an end and that there are other indicators that will move back from that. 100% transparency. And, and I might be oversimplifying, so please feel free to clarify. But it, it seems like it's something where it continues. It's that kind of immediate reassurance that doesn't actually build real trust. How do you... I, I just, I guess, want, I want a little bit more clarification on it. Sure. So, so when I say it's mean and end, I don't think that transparency is only needed when somebody discover infidelity. I really think in a healthy relationship, there shouldn't be any secrets. If I'm not doing anything fishy, you know, I always give the analogy like, you know, you live in a big house with all these rooms with doors that you can lock. You know, I can keep the door closed, right? I don't have to lock it. If you're my partner, you want to see what's behind door number one, number two, ask me and I'll show you because I don't really have anything to hide. So really transparency in a relationship should be just, you know, a standard basic that should come with any relationship. Now, in the terms of infidelity, it's even more needed because now I don't really trust you. I don't really know those factors that led to infidelity have disappeared. So I need this extra level of it until I actually see those actual changes. And I think sometimes people struggle with that because, and I don't know if it's a social trend or some kind of a way of we're being program now in terms of, you know, you can't have autonomy with without transparency. I think there is room for the two to coexist, right? Because when you're in a healthy relationship, you have a partner, everything you do, big or small, is going to impact your partner. There is no such thing that this is going to impact me only. 
even the type of salad dressing that I'm going to have if I have, you know, <laughs> I'm diabetic or whatever, right? That's not just my choice. My wife, you know, loves me. She doesn't want me to die. So that's going to impact her too. I guess, I mean, for me, I, I feel like I agree. I think in healthy relationships, transparency is key, but it's not active. It's not, I'm constantly checking my partner's messages all the time. I'm not constantly needing to know exactly where he is at every moment of every day. Like, I think for me, getting from this active transparency and as well as that kind of constant communication that is checking versus connecting, how does that look in practice when it actually goes from that, I don't trust you, so I'm watching your every move to now we're just kind of transparent because there's nothing to hide. Sure. And I think what you're highlighting here is that you want to avoid uh, having the betrayed to get stuck in this trap of rumination, right? Because that can be a full-time job and I'm just watching everything. And that's not what we want to do. So the way I presented to my clients too is that what? We will agree that we want transparency. Transparency doesn't mean that I have to look behind your back. I always say, let's present it as an opportunity for proving if somebody's actually being successful or not. So rather than saying, hey, go behind my back, look at my phone, look at my email, ask me in the moment, hey, I have concern about this. I'm feeling triggered. Can you please show me your phone? Can you please show me your emails, right? And this gives me the opportunity if I'm then faithful to say, okay, I'm either going to say, hey, I'll, I'll show you this, right? And thank you for not going behind my back. And I can address, you know, the triggers that you're dealing with. Or I could fail by saying, no, I don't want to show you, right? Because why would I want to do that and be secretive unless I'm doing something wrong? So really seeing it more of an opportunity to test drive whether or not we are actually implementing this action plan and we're fixing those factors. But also, again, emphasizing, and that's why the action plan is very important. I always tell people like, the success should not be of how transparent the person is and how often you look at their phone and, and you don't find anything because when people actually make that mistake, they get more creative so somebody can cover their track. And I would say transparency doesn't have as much value as you think it does. It's just a crush that you need, but I'm also expecting you not to rely on it. And also I ask my clients to kind of measure how often they are relying on this transparency versus focusing on the relationship issue. Because once we get to the implementation phase and we're actually putting the action plan into play, a couple are supposed to be having a, a minimum of one weekly meeting with one another, looking at this action plan. Are we following through with the steps that we said to address those factors? And if we are, great. This is a healthier, clear indicator of repair versus just looking at somebody's phone and checking behind them. I tend to see people after the affairs in kind of individual factors and working as part of a team in this that there usually ends up being kind of the individual therapist, the couples therapists that are in this. What do you recommend as far as treatment teams, as far as getting clarity on these goals together when there might be very competing needs and especially if nobody's trained in how to do good infidelity work <laughs> in the first place, let alone working with just kind of the emotional processes of only one partner or the other in this. Sure. And, and this is what I love about the value of informed consent. And it's funny because, you know, if you're, you think about when we were learning about informed consent, we just think of it as just really more of a paperwork, just basic ethical stuff, right? But it actually has a tremendous clinical value. So, so before I take clients on, I told them, always tell them that if you're seeing an individual therapist, right, or you're probably going to see an individual therapist in your future, I need to make sure that we have full access so that we're working together as a team and we're not undermining each other's work. 
This is especially true when you have a client who have an individual therapist who have their own moral bias about infidelity and they're undermining all the work that you're doing, right? So, you know, if we're working in a team, we all have to be going in the same direction. That doesn't mean that we overstep in each other's toes. It's just really making sure that we all are okay with this process so that we can work together as a team and make sure that everybody's following. Because like I said, if, if somebody going to individual therapy and they don't really know what was discovered in the couple's counseling, you're really not addressing those issues. And also we can tend to have blind spots. So if I'm only going to report to my individual therapist what I see, right? And that's the value of really having those open lines of communication to make sure that we're all working together as a team to address the individual issues and the relationship issues that we're trying to fix. Yeah, I think that's so important. I know for myself, I don't do couples work, but I have worked with a number of folks who have couples therapists. And when I actually am able to talk with the couples therapist, and it's not been specifically infidelity, it's been other things. But regardless of the couples work, I feel like as an individual therapist, I am bound to get in the way of the couples therapist if I don't understand what's actually happening in the, in the whole picture. Specifically, I'm now thinking about the betrayed partner and, and how traumatic that can be and how coming to terms with that and kind of empowering that client, theoretically, if it's not informed by this process, could mean that this client is saying in couples therapy that they want to repair the relationship, but in individual therapy, they're working to heal individually and mistrust the process. That's a very valid point. And that's what I'm saying that really... And, and again, it's hard too, because you cannot force the individual therapist to say you have to believe in this model. But if those two sure. models don't go together, right, then it becomes really a conflict of interest that's not going to benefit the client. The question I guess I was trying to lead to is for the betrayed partner within the SART model, I've seen a lot of folks who feel very traumatized by this type of betrayal. How does that fit into the work? How do we support the betrayed partner? So one thing that I always recommend for the betrayed is to engage in individual counseling, specifically geared toward the trauma piece, dealing with the PTSD residual symptoms. EMDR and brain spotting have been phenomenal for the betrayed. So that's always something good adjunct services for the betrayed that I highly recommend. And, and this can actually help the therapeutic outcome of the couple session significantly. It's a make or break for the people who actually consider doing individual counseling versus just focusing on the couple's aspect. Where can people find out more about you and the model that you're working on, as well as find out some of the things that you've written and books that you're working on? So folks can find me on my main website, talalalsalim.com. They can learn about my clinical practice. They can actually see a link to the systematic affair recovery therapy training. Right now, actually, there is a level one certification course in the SART model, and it's 100% online. You can take it at your own pace. This is not just theoretical knowledge. You can actually see the model in action with clinical vignettes, seeing my work with the clients through the milestones of recovery. And even though it's online, you actually have access to live Q&A virtually once a month to actually make sure that you are understanding those concepts. Also, you can find me on YouTube, The Infidelity Doctor, Fair Recovery and Support. And that channel, you're actually going to see season one of my docu-series. And the docu-series was designed to showcase the SART model working with challenging cases of infidelity. So you get to see the journey of a real couple beginning to an end. This is, you know, no script, no crew, right? oh, wow. real therapy. And you see bits and pieces of me giving my clinical insight about uh, what you see. 
And you also have a giveaway for our listeners. Absolutely. Two signed books, Infidelity, the Best Worst Thing That Could Happen to Your Marriage. And also stay tuned for a second book that's going to be coming out next year. It's called Unfaithful and Unrepentant Affairs Beyond the Hopes of Repair. And this book is going to be discussing some of the challenging cases where healing together as a couple is not attainable. And we'll make sure to set up a place for you to sign up to go into a drawing that we'll put together to get those books so that you can have an opportunity to get a signed copy. Very cool. And you can find that over in our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com. We'll also link to Tlal's website and all of the other super cool stuff that he is putting out there. So find those over at mtsgpodcast.com. Follow us on our social media. Join our Facebook group, The Modern Therapist Group. And until next time, I'm Kurt Withelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Talal Al-Salim. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 